0: With great power comes great responsibility.
1: Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling
0: you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move.
1: It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move.
0: Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. And good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you for being with us here on the program this evening. Make sure to like, and subscribe. And by the way, just so you know, this is just kind of a quick update for you. We're actually on a lot more mediums now. I did a little bit of that use the long holiday weekend to kind of update some of those things. And so now we're on uh, Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, Periscope, all the mediums we've been on for a long time. But now, especially on the audio side of things, We're also on brand new venues like Pandora and Amazon Music and iHeart and SoundCloud. No, wait, actually, we're not on SoundCloud. That was an old one. But basically, we're on all the venues. So if you're not watching us now, that's really a you problem. I mean, it's not because we're not on enough venues at this point. But thank you so much for being with us. Regardless of how you're watching, regardless of how you choose to consume our show, we certainly appreciate you making us a part of your busy day and as always here on tactics local news takes first priority and so we're going to go ahead and talk about something that happened here just recently this isn't just local news in the sense that it's in the state of alabama we're actually going super local right here to the capital city in montgomery alabama this is a graphic that was sent out by the esteemed mayor of our city mayor stephen reed celebrating gay pride month. That's right. The mayor of Montgomery felt it was appropriate to use resources allocated by the city of the, the uh, the city of Montgomery granted. I don't know how much it took, but it took some city resources because this is obviously something that somebody in the graphic design department put together. And for those of you that are just listening on audio, it says, I am committed to making our city a safer and more inclusive place for our LGBTQ plus community. Has his name on it. it. says, the city of Montgomery stands in solidarity with the LGBTQ plus community. Can't we just switch over to quilt bag? I thought that was the better one. Uh, and then it says, Montgomery celebrates Pride Month, has the official city seal. Here's the thing that I find horribly ironic about this whole thing. You'll notice that the the big bold part of that graphic is I'm committed to making our city a safer and more inclusive place. Um, why not just make the city safer for everyone in general? I mean, don't get me wrong. If there is anything unsafe happening to anybody that's gay, I do want that stopped. I don't want gay people harassed or, you know, violence to fall down upon them i don't want anybody to be attacking gay people in the streets not that i think that that's actually something that happens at least not that i'm aware of i mean i'm not saying that gay people aren't in danger in the city and aren't getting attacked in the streets i'm just saying that it's happening not because they're gay but because they're in montgomery and so this is a problem with the general populace not specifically with the gay community and i'm not saying that gay people have not faced You know, from time to time, some kind of persecution. And I'm not even saying that it's never happened in Montgomery, but the idea that this is something that is rampant and something that we need to be worried about, I'd be a lot more worried about just keeping gay people safe in the same way that I would be worried about keeping everyone safe. I mean, gay people are citizens of the city of Montgomery too, and I actually know some, and believe it or not, I know this will shock some people, but I'm actually friends with some of them. And so I don't have a problem with them being kept safe. I just want everyone kept safe. I, I think that that is the bigger concern here. And so I think what's going on here is I just wish that we were more concerned about keeping the city safe generally as opposed to trying to say, well, we, we really want to make it safer for gay people. Why, why don't we just make it safer generally? Like if everyone – this is the, the thing that people on the left have an issue with when you say all lives matter. Like, You don't care about black people. Um, No, black people would be included in all. Gay people would be included in all. Everybody is included in all. That's what all means. But this is the same principle I'm trying to apply here. Let's just make the city safer and then gay people will be safer too. If a person attacks a gay person, I don't care if it's because they're gay. I don't care if it's because they wanted their wallet. I don't care if it's for whatever reason, whether it has anything to do with their sexual preferences or not, that should be stopped because it's a crime. Not because they're a gay person. And so the, the rationale here is kind of faulty. But the thing is, this is never about rationality. This is never about a specifically targeted minority community because there's no reason for me to believe based on any statistics or data that I've seen whatsoever – that gay people are specifically being targeted in the city of montgomery now if they were of course i want them protected but there's no reason for me to think that this is a rampant problem that we need to pay special attention to specifically because of their sexual preferences ill gotten and wrong as they may be but the thing is reed just sees this as a stepping stone into the cool kids club because everything mayor reed does You know, I've said that everything Governor Kay Ivey does, you can basically tell what she's going to do by following her one political rule, which is stay out of the spotlight as much as possible and don't make waves. Mayor Reed's kind of the same way. You can understand and predict what he is going to do based on his one political philosophy, which is do things to ingratiate yourself to the National Democrat Party. Everything he does, he does to try to appease them not the people of the city, the DNC. And the reason is because he sees Montgomery and the job of being mayor of Montgomery as merely a stepping stone to bigger and better things. And just like Barack Obama with the city of Chicago, once he steps up to that next level, he will never look back. Oh, he may pay some lip service to it every now and then, and may even occasionally make the photo op to return to the city that he's from. But the idea that we're going to see him make it a point to come back and make sure that the city is doing well that's just not a a reality and that's the way that mayor reed has always been and that's why he will go out of his way and, and even ignore his duties as mayor specifically to try to gain the favor of people at the dnc that's how the man operates and always has and if he wants to refute me on that i've told you before I've offered him a standing invitation. He can come anytime he wants to. I've gotten in touch with his office. I've talked to his PR people, never gotten a message back, never even so much as a call back to say, up yours, we don't want to do your show. And so uh, when it comes to that, I, I think that that is indicative of the fact that the man just really wants to, uh, that and you know a lot of other things, including his behavior. But uh, ultimately, what he's really just trying to do is he's trying to ensure that he has a future at the dnc and the thing that i find most disturbing about this whole thing because of course uh, as somebody that does not agree with the gay agenda i would be somebody that would be naturally averse to it regardless of what form that it took but even putting that aside i think the thing that bothers me even more about that is the fact that he feels feels that this is something that is appropriate to use city funds and city taxpayer dollars and city resources on But not the same for Memorial Day. Now, to his credit, he did make a post about Memorial Day and did tweet about it. He did one, like, 40-second video, and it was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. I'm not being critical of that. But I noticed that when I went down, uh, you know, going downtown and and looking around on Memorial Day – the flags were not even at half staff. Not only were there no decorations, not only were there no flags hanging up, there were no murals or anything like that on, on what is a nationally recognized holiday, which is specifically set aside to honor those that gave the ultimate sacrifice. On top of that, Montgomery's a military town. We have two air force bases and tons of military personnel. And, It seems to me like that would have merited, I don't know, something, but I guess he was a little too busy planning for his announcement for Gay Pride Month and how he stands in solidarity with the LBGTQAIMP Silent Four people. He's more worried about them than he is honoring our fallen heroes that actually fought and bled to preserve our freedoms, by the way, also the freedoms of gay people. Apparently, that is just beyond his ability to do anything for. And what actually I think is a lot worse, because granted, the old BGTQ thing and and the Pride Month announcement, does it get under my skin? Sure. But at the end of the day, it is just an internet post. And he did also do an internet post for Memorial Day. Now, I would think that Memorial Day would merit significantly more activity than the gay pride thing would have, especially since that's something that's controversial. Not everybody in the city agrees on it um memorial day is far more universal and it's also something that montgomery has a specific stake in because we are a military town but on top of that to add insult to injury if you go around downtown you may notice that the graffiti and by graffiti it was sanctioned by the city of montgomery uh the graffiti all over the fountain right there at the plaza you know on the road that leads up to the Capitol that has blm black lives matter messaging over that That has been up for a year now. So it's been up for an entire year. We can leave up decorations that literally have the name of a terrorist organization that specifically says that they want to bring down the country and destroy the nuclear family. It's perfectly okay to have their names and their logos and their symbolism on our public fountains for over a year, but we can't take the freaking flag and take it down to half-mast. For Memorial Day? I think that's a pretty good indication of where Mayor Reed's priorities actually are. And it saddens me to say this, but that's, I think, one of the reasons. I don't think it's the most important reason, but I do think it's one of the reasons that so many people are moving to places outside of the city. They feel as though the leadership of the city no longer reflects their values, that really Mayor Reed is primarily the mayor of the Democrat part of the city, which there are significant ones out there. I mean, after all, the man did get elected. I'm not saying that it's not a very blue city, but a lot of these people I think are leaving because they feel that their values are no longer reflected in the city's leadership. And another thing that I thought about, if Mayor Reed is so inclusive and wants to make sure everybody's included in everything, why stop at Pride Month? I mean, do the other seven deadly sins get a month to them too? Do we get a gluttony month? Do we get a, a greed or an envy month? Or like, It seems odd to me that pride is the only sin that gets a, a whole month to itself that Mayor Reed wants to celebrate. If he's really inclusive, you, you think he's going to celebrate, I, I don't know, um, envy month next month? Is that July? I don't know. I'm not really sure. But anyway, Mayor Reed, well, I, I'll say this. Gluttony does kind of get that weird. (laughs) Maybe gluttony does get a month. Gluttony kind of gets that month span between Thanksgiving and Christmas because I don't know if you're anything like me, you just constantly eat that entire time anyway. And I guess you could say Festivus, which is my favorite holiday. (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, I, I guess you could say Festivus would be wrath. You do have the feats of strength and the airing of grievances. So Uh, i guess you could say festivus gets wrath so it it at least gets a day one of the other seven deadly sins gets a day i suppose um but i will say this i think that pride month is incredibly appropriately named i do i think that a lot of people say you shouldn't have pride in it or that's not something to be proud about and i understand what they're saying and i actually agree with the people that say that however i would make a note that I actually think that homosexuality is a form of pride. I think that, you know, there's other sinful aspects of it. Lust is certainly involved in there. But I think ultimately it is an exercise in pride. Homosexuality, at its core, if you dig down to what the core of homosexuality is, it actually is pride. And I'm just going to leave that as a teaser. I'm not going to dive real deep into that because we have a very special chaplain's report where I'm going to talk about the Christian and how Christians should react to Pride Month, and that is coming up at the end of the show, so be sure to stick around for that. Now, in other local news, so we you know, stay on local news and give it the priority, and we'll, we'll talk about uh, that a little bit later in the show, Governor Kay Ivey, our dear leader, <laughs> picking at me a little bit there. Uh, she announced her campaign to be reelected, which, frankly, I was kind of surprised about. A lot of people, I think, were more surprised than me. A lot of people were like, really, I thought she would retire. I was like, mm. I thought it was maybe in the cards, but I I wasn't sitting there like, yeah, I know she's going to retire. Look, Kay Ivey is a politician, and politicians, just as a unit, as a general rule, they are very loath to retire before their terms expire. They, they just are. And Governor Ivey is is kind of a politician that runs in those establishment circles. And I know a lot of people like to think of her as a conservative, but even the ones that I think see her as a conservative don't really see her as a political outsider. And so I'm kind of baffled by why so many people were surprised and really thought she was going to retire. I kind of saw this coming. But the thing that does irritate me about it is I could very well see this being a repeat of 2018. And by that, I mean, in the 2018 primary and the, the gubernatorial race, you may recall that what happened is we had three primary opponents, all of which were significantly more conservative than K.I.V. We had a senator from the Mobile area in Hightower. We had the mayor of Huntsville, Tommy Battle. And we had, um, what was it, Scott Dawson? Yeah, Scott Dawson an evangelist who lives in Alabama who didn't really have any political prior experience but I wound up interviewing and talking to all three of them you know why because they wanted to talk to me they made it a point to reach out to people via talk radio KIV like I said KIV's one political rule is to stay out of the spotlight and don't make waves and she lives by that and it served her well because as long as she doesn't get in trouble she has enough name recognition that enough establishment voters and and low-information voters are just going to vote for and she's going to win anyway. And I think, unfortunately, probably what's going to happen this time is going to be exactly the same as 2018. We'll probably have a slate of primary opponents, probably all of which will be more conservative than Kay Ivey. And I want you to understand when I'm saying that. I'm not saying that K.I.V. is a rhino or a leftist because she does, on rare occasions, actually show some conservative bona fides, but it ain't real common. I mean, I think that one of the good things that came out of the the pandemic and how K.I.V. handled that is some of the people that kind of thought of K.I.V. as a conservative that I had been saying for years. Nope, not a conservative. She's very much an establishment Republican and very much in line with. Uh, just going along to stay in office. She's not somebody that is going to lay it all down and, and go to the mattresses for a conservative cause. That's just not who she is. A lot of the people that argued with me about that, I think were like, you know what? Caleb actually is right on that. And I hate being right. I wish that I was not right. And to Kay Ivey's credit, she wasn't one of the worst governors when it came to that. And I don't think she's one of the worst governors when it comes to governance in general. But she ain't a conservative. And never really has been. She'll occasionally do a conservative thing here or there, but only when it costs her nothing politically. For example, she signed into law the abortion ban. Okay, well, the governor is the chief law enforcement officer in the state of Alabama. They are in charge of Aliyah, They're in charge of all of the law enforcement in the state. I know the attorney general handles a lot of that, but ultimately the attorney general still answers to the governor. And what has KIV done to stop the abortion mills and abortion clinics in the state of Alabama, of which I believe there are 11? Nothing. And so yes, she will sign the bill because she believes it bumps up her conservative street cred, but when it comes to actually doing something conservative that might cost her something politically, she ain't gonna lift a finger to do that, gang. Never has been. And when it comes to a new spending bill or a new taxation bill, she ain't never met a spending bill or a new tax that she did not like. And so the idea that KIV is some kind of committed, dyed-in-the-wool conservative, nope, not the case. She is at best a milquetoast Republican. And she'll occasionally do some conservative things, to her credit, but normally not really. And so I'm frustrated by the fact that Kay is running for re-election because I think what is going to happen is we're going to see exactly the same thing as 2018. We're going to have a few primary people that try to primary her. They're going to go up and spend everything they've got, going to get way outspent by her, and a whole bunch of low information voters that have no idea who they are are going to show up. KIv is going to win. She is going to win without even needing a runoff. It's going to be a landslide. She's going to get significantly over 50% of the vote, and then she'll be our governor for the next four years. That's what I predict is going to happen. be wrong but go back and watch this and see if i'm wrong i i would put down money that i am going to win that bet unless you know barring some kind of health condition happened to her because i mean the woman is a cancer patient that could happen i'm not saying that that won't happen and and god forbid that it would as a fellow cancer patient i'm you know i pray for kiv on that but barring something like that i do not foresee kiv going anywhere or losing a primary or losing the election. KIv is going to be our governor for the next four years. If, if she is still healthy enough to be able to do that. But in other news, Attorney General Stephen Marshall also said that he's going to be running for reelection, which is no surprise. And in Marshall's case, he's done a dang good job. Now, I am not beyond seeing somebody else that has a good record and wants to be the attorney general, and saying, "Okay, yeah, I, I could vote for you for, in the primary." But I, I genuinely don't know who that would be. I don't have any inkling. I know that Troy King's been just running for random offices. And I know that he really likes being attorney general and has been in the past. And he might try to primary Steve Marshall. But honestly, I don't, I don't foresee Troy King doing that. He's already lost to Marshall once. I think that he sees that it would be a big waste of time. And so I think if Troy King does run for anything, he's going to run for something else. And so when it comes to Marshall, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head that could primary Marshall and wind up winning. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't know, but I, I don't see it happening. And so I think that you're going to see the same thing with Kay Ivey. I think that Steve Marshall is probably going to be our attorney general for the next four years. If he wins it. I mean, if he, I don't, I don't see him losing in 2022, I guess is the the right way to say that. Uh, And the truth is I'm a lot, I I feel a lot better about Steve Marshall than I do Kay Ivey because Steve Marshall does occasionally do some actual conservative things, but my biggest beefs with him right now are that, Maybe it's just from an outsider's perspective looking in, but it doesn't look like he's doing a whole lot to enforce Alabama's gambling laws. And he's been there for four years now, so I have a hard time buying the argument that he's biding his time or waiting on something specifically. Maybe he is, I don't know. But that that argument and that excuse would be wearing a little bit thin right now. I, I don't really see how he's been doing that. And it, there are a lot of people out there right now that don't agree with Alabama's gambling laws. Okay, that's fine. There's a way to change that and you have to do it at the ballot box. You don't get to make laws and then just choose, ah, we'll not enforce those. And by the way, I like Steve Marshall. He's been on my show several times. I would love to hear his side of the story and have him come on. In fact, I, I think, you know, coming out with this off the top of my head on the live show, uh, I think I'll give him a call and, and talk to him about that since he's running for re-election. He'll probably be pretty apt to do an interview. And uh, I'm bothered by the fact too, just like KIV, Ivey, that he is not enforcing Alabama's abortion ban. But, you know, I do want to see the other options, but if Steve Marshall winds up being the attorney general for another four years, I'm cool with that. I am am pretty sanguine about it, honestly. I I think that there could be a better candidate, and I guarantee you, if you want to win Caleb Cockwood's vote, not that that's a big deal or anything, but if you want to win Caleb Cockwood's vote and you want to be the attorney general, all you have to do is promise to actually enforce the law, including Alabama's abortion ban and you're going to go a long way in getting my vote. So that that's a pretty good way to I wouldn't say perfectly guarantee cuz you could be for a whole bunch of other stuff that I disagree with. But if you offer that, I'm my ears are going to perk up and I'm going to be pretty apt to listen to you. So if you do want to get my vote for attorney general, I think a lot of conservatives would be would be interested in that pitch. So if that's the case, I think that that would be a good way to go about it. Now, just kind of speaking generally, I, I wanted to talk because we've talked very specifically about Pride Month and how some of our elected officials have handled it. But one of the things that is frustrating is that the leftists just bombard you with crap on Pride Month. And as much as it is annoying, and it is annoying, it, it bothers me. I But at the end of the day, it's not that big a deal. It doesn't really affect my life that much. I mean, Am I annoyed when I'm watching whatever streaming service I'm watching and every single freaking commercial break is some kind of ode to Pride Month? Yeah, it bugs me, but it doesn't ruin my life. I can live with it and I'm an adult and I know it's crap. And so it's a little obnoxious, but ads are obnoxious anyway. So it doesn't really affect me all that much. What does get under my skin is when they use Pride Month as an excuse to push their agenda with people that don't know better, that aren't adults like I am. And of course, what I'm talking about is that they use this as an opportunity to push the agenda onto children. And one such example of this comes from Blue's Clues. It's a popular children's show. Now, I was a little too old for Blue's Clues, and my family also didn't have cable. So back when it used to come on Nickelodeon, I didn't see it because... I was too old for it, and we didn't have cable anyway. So a lot of people got very upset about this, partly because of nostalgia, and I totally understand that. That's reasonable. you know, A show that you watched as a kid now pushing an evil secularist agenda as opposed to just being entertainment for little kids. I I get that, but I don't really have that emotional attachment to it. I have the emotional attachment to the kids and people trying to use this as an excuse to sexualize children. But I'm just saying that the show itself, I I really bear no loyalty to. And I think that kind of gives me the advantage of looking at it slightly more objectively than somebody that remembers it fondly. But you have to remember that Blue's Clues is a show that is primarily marketed to children between the ages of three and five. So we're not even talking about like preteens or even, you know, maybe third graders, kids that are a little bit older and can understand a little bit more nuance. No, we're talking about very, very young children, toddlers and like the post-toddler era before they even go to school. That's the age group that we're talking about when we're talking about Blue's Clues. And this particular episode featured a sing-along by drag performer Nina West, who apparently was a favorite on RuPaul's Drag Race. I don't know, it's some kind of reality show. I did a little research on it. Apparently AOC has been on it, which I thought was weird um you know aoc has her flaws but she's not a drag queen but i guess she was there to endorse them i don't know but anyway so this is a person that is on reality tv and is well known as a drag queen and so they they bring a transvestite onto the cartoon and and they that person lends the voice to the cartoon version of themselves being depicted on the show and you'll see what i'm talking about just watch this clip the character actually goes to a gay pride parade and performs a sing-along for kids to sing with. It's time for a pride parade! Families
1: marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah! Families marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah! This family has two mommies, they love
0: each other so proudly, and they all go marching in the big Two two, Alright, so before we cut away from this, I want you to notice something, and there's a reason I'm leaving that frozen frame up. You'll notice at the, the, the very front of the float that they're at right now, they have a little gay pride flag that also has a clenched fist on it. And if you look at the, I think that's a rabbit, you look at the rabbit hopping along the side, he's also carrying a flag that has a clenched fist on it. And this is important for a couple of reasons. But as evil and horrific as the the gay pride and shoving that down your kids' throats is, and and I think that that's the worst of what we're going to look at today, I want to take just a quick second and to look at that flag that has the clenched fist because this is not merely a moral thing. This is also heavily political and the clenched fist is actually fantastic evidence for that because if you notice that fist flag on the float that is not an arbitrary symbol that is something that has been used for a really really long time and it is a symbol of socialism so you're not just getting sexual preferences and you know homosexuality shoved down your kids throat if you're having them watch this show you're also getting a healthy dose of socialism as well this particular symbol has been a part of socialist lingo and symbology for a really long time. This is an article from National Geographic, and it says, one of the earliest known instances of the U.S. Uh, in the U.S. of a protester brandishing the race fist occurred in 1913 when Big Bill Haywood spoke to strikers during the Patterson Silk Strike in New Jersey. Haywood, a founding member of the Union Industrial Workers of the World, preaching working-class solidarity across all races and trades and so that's really important the industrial workers of the world or what it later became to be known international workers of the world which again became a a slogan international workers of the world unite that that whole thing Um, that has been a a rallying cry for socialist dogma For a really long time. This has a very, very old history. And we're not going to go into all the details. That would take way too long and is way beyond this the scope. But just to prove my point that this is a socialist symbol, here's a few tidbits of history to help you understand how old and, and how symbolic this is. So this is a as you can see, a clenched fist. It's it's supposed to be the fist of solidarity from the industrial or sorry, international workers of the world. And um this particular fist is from the Solidarity newspaper, which was published in June 30, 1917. So you can see they, they talked about the very first instance of it being 1913. Just five years later, this thing was in socialist propaganda pieces as a symbol for the industrial workers of the world from 1917. Now, fast forward just a little bit, 1920, Chicago, you can see the clenched fist was used as a symbol there. For rallying for again the international workers or sorry, the industrial workers of the world. You can see the IWW thing there down in the corner. Fast forward a little forward beyond 1920 because that's 1920 Chicago there. You can see this is again from that same National Geographic article. You can see those pictures of people doing the clenched fist. And I want you to read the bottom part for the picture on the left. It says in 1936. A Parisian crowd demonstrates support for the Popular Front, a coalition of socialist, communist, and other fascist organizations. So, again, we see socialists that have adopted this symbol. All right, this is several different versions of the clenched fist being used by the students for a democratic society. And you can see that all through the years, those first two were from the 60s. I think the publication is from maybe the late 60s, early 70s. And you see the iteration of that symbol being used by the students of democratic society over and over again. Now that may sound benign on its surface, but this is a very radical group. They had ties to the Weather Underground back in the 60s, which was an actual terrorist organization that bombed the Capitol building. And by bombed, I don't mean like what happened on January 6th, where they stormed the Capitol, went in, saw some stuff, put their feet up on a desk and walked out. I mean, they literally blew up part of the Capitol. And people were injured. Like th- this is a actual terrorist organization that had that SDS had ties to. Wildly socialist. And they're using the same symbol. And so this is not something that would be unfamiliar to the left of today either. And then this is something that they're using. They continue to use this symbol even today. You can see on the far left there from the 1960s, that's the Black Panthers doing the clenched fist salute. You can see that they still use it with Black Lives Matter just from, I believe that one was from last year, the mural with all the clenched fist. And then you can see there at the bottom, that's at an Antifa protest that happened last year. And so Antifa, Black Lives Matter, all of these different socialist communities coming together and you may also notice that back in the 1936 picture that we showed that it was talking about communist socialist and anti-fascist that's talking about the original antifa so this goes back a really long time and this also goes to illustrate that a lot of people would try to look at this if they were arguing for having something like this like Well, Blue's Clues is really just trying to, they're they're not being political, they're just trying to teach kids that being gay is okay. Well, okay, I have my problems with that too, but it's also overtly political. They're trying to send in political messages and condition children as young as two and as old as five to think like them and to grow up to be somebody that is a political ally of theirs. This is a political process, make no mistake. I mean, we would be upset if we saw, for example, a swastika or a sickle and hammer in a kid's show, or at least I I would hope that we would. The clenched fist is no different. It is a symbol that has ties to terrorist organizations and radical political groups of the left and has for about 100 years now. And so, well, actually over 100 years since it started in 1913. So make no mistake, they are trying to push morals on your kid, but they're also trying to push political agendas on your kid. But moreover than that, the fact that this happens at a pride parade is not insignificant. Have you ever actually been to a pride parade? I'm guessing most of the people in my audience haven't. And granted, I haven't been to one in person because I wasn't able to make it. I had planned to go to one in Birmingham and and wasn't. I was only able to watch it online. These are not family-friendly events. And so they depict the Pride Parade in the kids' show. It's horribly unrealistic. And weirdly enough, the dolphins and beavers and bears and crocodiles in it, that's actually the most realistic thing of what uh, a Pride Parade looks like because there are a bunch of freaks dressed up like animals. But if you've ever actually been to one, it is not family-friendly at all. I mean, there are men walking around with basically i mean literally just wearing socks on their junk not even wearing underwear just walking around stark naked with nothing but like some some kind of sock device strapped around their stuff so they're not technically naked but they really are i mean you can see their butt everything there there's little to the imagination you see guys walking around in bondage stuff leather straps uh in in the one in birmingham that i was watching They had a a guy that was walking around with a crown made of sex toys. I mean, this is horrendously creepy stuff that I don't even think should be allowed in public for adults. Much less having a bunch of little kids there and singing about it and riding on the floats in the parade. That's simply not something that should ever happen. Even if you agree with the gay agenda, you should be able to get on board with the fact that this is not a thing that is designed for children to be at or to be family-friendly in any way. And unfortunately, that's not the worst of it. This sing-along actually continues to get worse. And this is the second clip of that. Watch. Families marching 4 by 4 hurrah, hurrah. Families marching 4 by 4 hurrah. And you see, we're going to zoom in here. This is the most disturbing part of the video, in my opinion, because you'll notice that right before we zoomed in, it was a whole family of beavers. And now that we've zoomed in, it's we're zooming in on the youngest or the youngest looking beaver. I know it's a cartoon beaver, so you can't really tell the age, but it's the smallest and it's obviously the one that's trying to be depicted as a child. So unless you're like knee deep in this crap, like I am every day, you may not fully understand the symbolism here. So I'm going to walk you through it. You see that, like, light blue and then pink and white strap on the beaver's arm? That particular color scheme is supposed to be the symbol for trans. And if you'll notice, on the beaver's chest, there are what appear to be scars. Just sort of rigid protrusions where the breast would normally be. And by the way, this particular, I had to stop it here so that you could actually see this part of it, but this clip goes on to talk about how this particular family is trans and they love each other proudly or some, you know, leftist gobbledygook like that. So they're very specifically trying to depict this family as trans, and they even say that later in the clip. But if you look at that part of the beaver's chest, none of the other beavers have that. It's only on this one, who is also happens to be the youngest member of this beaver family. And what that's actually supposed to be depicting, if you understand the symbolism here, is that is a child that has undergone transition surgery to remove their breasts. That's what that's supposed to represent. I wish I was making this up but I'm not. And this only happens on that one beaver out of the beaver family of five, which means that that's not like just a a way that they animated that particular animal. It's specific to that one. And they picked the youngest child in the group and they picked the family that's supposed to represent the trans family in the parade. They are literally signaling to little kids that it is normal and natural and not something to be ashamed of to cut off your own body parts and have them surgically removed, have your body surgically altered as a child in order to transition from the gender you were born with. That's the messaging that they're sending out to two to five-year-olds. That's a level of, of evil and manipulation that, I, I mean, I don't even understand getting that deep into it. But but this is what is being spoon-fed to your kids. And I think that because I I talk to all kinds of people uh, across the political spectrum that you really need to understand what they're doing here in this emphasis on families and they say the word family like 10,000 times in this sing along. The only I think the only word they use more than family is proud or proudly. But they're talking about oh this this is a family and and this dad has this family has two dads this family has two moms this family is transgender this family is non-binary this family has like uh three dads a watermelon and a great aunt like I, I mean they're they're trying to say no all this is normal all this is natural it's all subjective there is no right or wrong there is no family structure that is preferable and so it's a slap in the face to the nuclear family and that is the intended goal by the way. Like we just mentioned the clenched fist that is a symbol of socialism but it has also been co-opted as we showed by black lives matter and what is one of black lives matter's goal to destroy the nuclear family that's in their platform on their website or it was they took it down but i have a copy of it that was something that was a part of their official platform They're all working in tandem. This is all about socialism. This is all about pushing the socialist agenda by destroying the most basic building block of society, the family. That's what we're dealing with here. And ultimately, that should come as no surprise because if they can get you to reject the most basic thing about who you are, I mean, what's the first thing that they determine about you when you come out of the womb? Is it a boy or a girl? If they can get you to reject the most basic part of your identity and say, no, it doesn't matter that, that I'm a boy, I'm actually a girl. If they can get you to do that, they can get you to reject anything, no matter how basic, no matter how fundamental, no matter how obvious. You will just accept whatever they feed you, regardless of whether it makes any sense or not. And that's what we're dealing with right now. That's the level of evil that is being fed to the kids. And that's how they're trying to normalize it. And what's really sad about this is this sort of normalization, this kind of trying to make everything feel normal and natural and doing it at a very young age. Do you know who else uses that method? Pedophiles and sex traffickers. When a pedophile is trying to groom a child to the point to where they will be able to use them sexually, but the child won't tell anybody or isn't going to you know, in any way reveal or talk about the things that they're doing, or it won't, you know, the, the parents won't notice a change in the child, which they almost always do eventually, but they, they try to normalize it and slowly build up and gradually groom children to think that this behavior is something that is normal for a little kid to behave in. And that's the way that they train kids to be able to use them for themselves or to tr- train them to use them as sex slaves. This is something that. You can ask anybody that works with kids like this. I've, I've, you know, I've worked with charities that do this. I'm not an expert in it myself, but I've talked to people that are that do this for a living, that specifically go out and try to uh, free children from sex traffic, that that work with the the government on on doing sting operations like that, and they say the same thing every single time. The way that they do it is they slowly build the kid into where they think this is what's supposed to happen, what's supposed to be normal. And so Blue's Clues trying to normalize this whole thing and be like, oh yeah, having two dads, having two moms, having your breast cut off because you think that you're a boy, even though you're a girl, it's all totally normal, it's totally natural. See how proud everybody is, see how happy everybody is, see it's all fine, don't worry about it. They're They're grooming kids through the TV, the same way that pedophiles and sex traffickers do. That's what we're dealing with, guys. Make no mistake about it. It's the same kind of thinking. It's the same kind of evil. They're doing it in a way that they themselves may not be abusing it, but they're doing it for their own political purposes, as we've already looked at. And I hear a lot of people on the left That crow and complain and don't understand how a bunch of evangelical Christians, follow me on this one because I'm I'm going somewhere with it. They don't understand how a bunch of evangelical Christians could choose somebody as crass and with such a lack of decorum and civility as Donald Trump to be their favorite on the ticket. Now, Donald Trump was not my first choice. I thought that there were several more conservative options on the table. To this day, I think Ted Cruz would have made a better president than President Trump. However, you want to know how you get Trump? That's how you get a Trump. Because Christians feel like they are under assault constantly. That They can't even let their kid sit and watch a children's program without being spoon-fed liberalism day and night, night and day. They can't get a moment's rest from it when they go home when they get off work. They want to spend some time with the family and just watch a couple of shows on TV. Oh, gay pride commercials! And in the show, there's going to be this token gay character, and they're going to have the gay episode or the gay storyline. Uh, with kids shows like uh, you've got the Beauty and the Beast that has that one gay scene at the end of it. You have rumors now that Frozen Three Elsa is going to have a girlfriend in it, like. There is no place that they can go. Uh, the new Marvel movie, Eternals, it's supposed to have a trans character in it. I mean, this, this is a constant thing that they can't get away from. They feel like they're under assault 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's no safe place for them or their family. Like I said, I'm a single guy. I'm a bachelor. It annoys me, but I don't have nearly as much stake in it because I know what's wrong, and it's not going to change my mind. But You know, parents feel like they're just trying to do the best that they can to shield their kids from things that might ruin their lives and and lead them down self-destructive paths. And they can't do that because even shows targeted at kids as young as two years old are shoveling this stuff in their mouth as fast as they can. If you want to know how you got a Trump, that's how you got a Trump. Because for all of his flaws, for all of the problems that I and other conservatives had with him, chiefest among them his moral scruples do you know what really appealed to voters about him he was like i will punch those guys in the mouth those guys that are constantly assaulting uh, assaulting you assaulting your family calling you bigots and racist and homophobes and everything i'm going to go up and i'm going to pop them right in the mouth and maybe that wasn't the best reaction from the evangelical community but that's the reason a whole bunch of them bought into it and you understand why watching stuff like this When you see kid shows being like, oh yeah, totally natural to just uh, surgically mutilate yourself for the sake of saying that you're a boy, even if you're a a child, and trying to push that agenda and normalize that to little kids. That's why Christians were like, you know what, we're going to go with the guy that just says, yeah, screw him, I'm going right after him. That's part of the reason that, that happened. And so for people on the left, think about it that way. When you when you understand it that way, like if your kids' shows were constantly just slipping in things about being pro-gun or slipping in things about being a Christian, okay, that would bother you. And you would understand how you would feel like you couldn't even leave your kids alone to watch TV without you constantly monitoring them. You would get a little bit of a sense of what conservatives go through 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But – Sadly, this isn't just something that happens within the realm of homosexuality. It's actually broader than that. Because talking about homosexuality is a form of sexuality. And I would say that the bigger problem, it usually comes in this form, it usually comes in the form of trying to be accepting to homosexuals. But I think that a a really real issue that does come up quite a bit is just the general idea that we should be hypersexualizing children and this is something that the media does quite a bit as well unfortunately uh, for example monday a school teacher in dalton new york was showing first graders a sex ed video and i was going to show a clip of it but frankly the only clips that i could show would be the benign ones the only ones that would actually depict what was actually happening and why it's inappropriate for little kids, I didn't feel comfortable showing on my show. So I'm not actually going to show you a clip of that when I have it there in the sources. If you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, you can actually see all of my sources right now. If you want to go and watch it on your own time, totally understandable. It lasts about two and a half minutes. So it's, it's worth the time spent to understand what these schools are pushing on their kids. But it, it straight up, you know, warning if you happen to be watching with a little kid, I'd, I'd have them leave the room or either pause the video right now it's teaching little kids about masturbation and teaching them how to do it. And, you know, you just touch yourself in this way and it feels good and that kind of thing. And it's not super graphic, but it does describe what that's like and it it depicts it as normal and natural and something you should do. And so that's not even really diving into the world of homosexuality, but it is sexualizing kids. And that has the same ramifications, like I just said, of kind of grooming children into thinking that that's normal and natural and something they should be doing. Now that has a number of unintended consequences and side effects. But one of them is studies have shown over and over again, when you sexualize a kid before they're ready, they always, when they get to the point that they should actually start thinking about sex, you know, right around the time they become teenagers, they're looking for new experiences. Which to a degree is normal and natural. But the problem is, if they've already had those experiences when they were kids, by the time they get to the teenage age, well, they've already done that. And so we want to accelerate it even further. Children that are sexualized before they're ready for it tend to be super sexual afterward because they're constantly seeking out new experiences. And if they've already had most of those experiences, they just continue to go further and further and further. And the problem with that is the younger that it happens, the younger they are when they push their sexuality even further, which means they are even more ill-equipped to handle it. You know, if you're thinking about, even if you think sex before marriage is okay, which of course I don't, I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible teaches against that. I believe that there's all kinds of secular reasons for not doing that either. But suffice it to say, I don't think you should be having sex before marriage. However, even if you don't necessarily believe that, Who do you think is more equipped to handle the decision of whether or not I should have sex? An 18 year old or a 14 year old? Because if you've basically done everything except actually having intercourse by the time you're 14, that's a long four year wait to the point that you get 18 to decide whether or not I should actually be engaging in sex or not. And so that hypersexualization has unintended consequences. Maintaining a child's innocence for as long as possible I'm not sh- saying you should never tell them about this stuff because then there does c- come a point where that stuff is appropriate. It's important to have that conversation. However, you can't jump to the end. You can't go ahead and start them out on that stuff early because then they'll continue to seek out new experiences and you have that same problem cropping up over and over again. And unfortunately, this is not even secluded to that one school. This is something that has happened a lot, especially with the pandemic. There were several, Schools that were even giving links to specific porn sites, which was really disturbing, but they were sending that actually to kids and it got reported by some of the parents that were overseeing their kids' education while they were homeschooling. They were saying, well, while you're isolated, this is, these are some tips on porn and, and masturbation and all this stuff. Now, granted, that was teenagers. This is dealing with first graders, but unfortunately, this is happening and it's happening younger and younger. So if you will go ahead and, and look at this headline from the US Sun. Um, it says mortified parents slam a porn literacy class at a $47,000 a year New York private school as an attempt to indoctrinate kids. And so that's just one more example of this. And, and so far, both of the stories that we've looked at as anecdotes to this have been in New York City, but this is spreading to other school districts. We had, a, I believe it was in Louisiana was a, another, we had a similar story. And so that's right here in the Southeast. And so this is coming to their schools. And again, this, this kind of goes back to what I was saying a second ago. Parents feel like they're under constant assault. They can't send their kids to a private school. They can't send their kids to a public school because we just had two examples of that happening in both a private and a public setting. They can't send their, they, they can't let their kids sit down and watch kids programming because it's going to be filled with the socialist agenda and, and sexuality, sexual themes, themes that they're not ready for, things that the parents don't want to have that conversation or ruin their child's innocence. Yet. And so there is no safe place they feel like. And, you know, I'm generally speaking pretty against safe spaces, but not for kids that aren't adult enough to handle some of those conversations. I mean, school should be a safe place, and these difficult decisions should be ones that are handled individually by the parents, not corporately in a one size fits all format by the school system. It's the parent's decision ultimately. And I do find it ironic that all these videos that talk about the importance of consent when they're addressing these young people, they don't actually ask the parents if they consent to have this shown to their kids because those two stories that we just talked about, they didn't tell the parents. Parents found out afterward. And with the Blue's Clues, they didn't like announce that this was going to happen beforehand. They just broadcast it. And all the parents that thought that they were leaving their kids in a safe place by letting them watch Blue's Clues found out afterward, they're wanting to indoctrinate your kids without your knowledge. They preach about consent when they're talking to the kids, but they don't care about the parents' consent because their goal is to make the kids like them and not like the parents'. This is Democrat credo. My least favorite president, Woodrow Wilson. When he was the president of Princeton, he said his goal, now granted, this is a college, so he was dealing with adults, but he said his goal as the president of Princeton was to make men as unlike their fathers as he could. This has been a Democrat strategy for over 100 years. It's nothing new. It's just been accelerated, and they continue to do it younger and younger and younger. And... Ultimately, what this boils down to is the leftists do not see sanctity as a valuable thing. They do not see a child's innocence as something that is worthy of protection. To most leftists, the body is just a playground, and talking about things as though they are sacred or a temple, that's just religious gobbledygook, and they'd rather get rid of it. But there is value in those things, and we've just talked about the dangers of engaging in these things too early. Let kids be kids. Let them be little. Let them be innocent. Let them not worry about sex because they'll have the rest of their lives to worry about it. Just let them be little kids for a while. That's all we're asking. And don't assume that you know better than the parents when it comes to this stuff. On this idea of, of hypersexualization, You know, there's a story that my aunt told me that just absolutely broke my heart. She's a bus driver in Kentucky. And she told me she drives a a bus for an elementary school. And she says that it's not a terribly uncommon thing for her to catch a second or a third grader watching porn on their phone on the bus. So not only are they consuming material that they shouldn't, They're apparently doing it so often and brazen enough that they are comfortable doing it in a public place. We are destroying our children. We are sacrificing them to suit our own goals and our own political needs as a society. And it's disgusting. We should be protecting the most innocent among us, and that is children. The battle for the children is the battle for the future. Now, leftists know that. And that's the reason that they are going after your kids, because they want them to be leftists just like they are. But if you actually care about the child themselves when you care about their soul, you want to preserve their innocence as long as possible, because childhood is already too short. And shortening, shortening it even more than it is now trying to cut that span off. I mean, we've already seen the left do this over and over again. Uh, You know, Hollywood doing that pedophile uh, movie on Netflix was proof enough for that, where they're literally showing an 11-year-old girl's crotch and zooming in on it. And I mean, this world is just, it's depressing because we're, we're so sick with sin and eat up with it. It can feel Like there is no hope, but as as long as God's people do care about him and try to raise their kids the best that they can remember, and this is something that gives me a great deal of comfort, that I believe God will be faithful and assist you in that, and he is more powerful than even people that control children's entertainment and are controlling the political narrative. Now we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the chaplain's report at the end of the show, but for now, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a little bit on tactics. Speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. If you wanna hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. And welcome back everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you for being here with us on the program. As always, we appreciate you watching and would ask that if you appreciate us, that you hit that subscribe button. If you're on YouTube, ring that little notification bell, feel free to leave a comment. We like engaging with the audience and be sure to like the video because that helps me fight off the dark cyber overlords at YouTube. And hey, it's my birthday tomorrow. So if you want to get me a present, like this video, subscribe to it. That would be really awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. Let's go now to the Daily Dose of Stupid.
1: Now you messed it up. (laughs) You're stupid.
0: And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, we are going to be featuring the one and only, the President of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden. And I use the middle name specifically here because remember that Robinette is his middle name because it is his mother's maiden name, which, by the way, comes from a family of slave owners. Now, I tend to not think that having slave owners in your family's past is something to be ashamed of because, you know, they're your ancestors. You can't control what they did. But apparently the left feels that this is very important and, and this is really problematic, yet they elected a guy who comes from a family of slave owners. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I re- the reason that I iterate that In this particular Daily Dose of Stupid, because we're going to be talking about Joe Biden's racism. Not racism of the past, not all of his racial flubs that he no, just this week. We're going to talk about just as racism happening this week. And there is actually quite a few incidents of that. So we're going to sort of lump them all into one big daily dose of stupid. And the first incident of this happened earlier this week where he was talking about um, a program, a government program to try to assist Black people that are incapable of getting a home, apparently, yeah, it's best if you just
1: watch. Shockingly, the percentage of Black American homeownership is lower today in America than when the Fair Housing Act was passed more than 50 years ago. (gasps) Lower today. That's wrong. And we're committed to changing that.
0: You know what? Joe Biden, for, for all my poking fun at his problems with public speaking and his word selection, I actually think he, he really hit the nail on the head. That is shocking. It's so shocking that all of the crappy government programs that were supposed to help black people over the past 50 years did Nothing. It's funny, he's actually, he doesn't even realize it, but he's arguing against his own point. He's saying, do you realize that more black people owned homes before we started a program to assist black people in owning homes? That's what conservatives have been saying forever. The government programs don't work, genius. I I, I love this because he's like, shockingly, it's, it's even worse than it was before there were protections for this kind of thing. What does that tell you? That means that even before government got involved with housing, and even in the 60s, in the middle of the civil rights movement, where there really were a lot of racial animus going on, and it was legal to be racist, you as a landowner could go out and be like, oh, that black family wants a house? Well, they can't have it because I don't like black people. Back when that was legal, it was still better for black people than today, 50 years later, after we have sunk $50 trillion into the war on poverty, much of it specifically aimed at black people because Lyndon Baines Johnson worked that in, most of it specifically aimed at helping black people and giving preference to them 50 years later Black home ownership is lower. You know who's not shocked about that? Every free market capitalist in history. Because that's how it works. When the government gets involved and makes people dependent upon the government, it doesn't help them. It hurts them and it holds them back. We blew $50 trillion. Now keep in mind, the cost of every American war combined from the Revolutionary War to the wars that are going on today with the troops that are stationed over in the Middle East. All of that combined cost us $7 trillion. We spent $50 trillion on the war on poverty since LBJ, and poverty is still at the same, and black homeownership is down, not up, from where it was in the 60s. And now... Democrats will probably point to this because they always point to discrepancy regardless of surrounding circumstances and be like, oh, well, see, that just proves that people are super racist now, except that very law, the the Fair Housing Act, outlawed people discriminating against people, and they will go to jail for a very long time if they do. And on top of that, you really want to make the case to me that race relations are worse today than they were in the 60s where there were white people literally going out and killing and lynching black people i mean granted it didn't happen as as often as it did maybe back in like the 30s or 40s but that was still going on in the 60s and you want to tell me that race relations are worse now than there were then in the 60s when black homeownership was higher good luck making that case But that's how Joe Biden is, and it's ironic that he's using that as a rationale for coming up with new government programs that cost more money that are designed to help black people just like the program that he just mentioned 50 years later has done the opposite. And somehow he thinks that this helps his case for why we need these government programs and government spending today. Joe Biden's a moron, and anybody that has any shred of critical thinking in their brain can look at, not even look at other sources, not even do research. Look at the stats that Joe Biden himself lists in his own speech and tell that that doesn't make any sense. That's where we are today, guys. And I think that it's funny that Democrats have followed this pattern for a very long time. They make a problem. And then they claim that they need more power and more money and more control to be able to fix the problem that they made. That black housing is actually lower now that they've had 50 years and $50 trillion to try to fix that problem. And they're saying, you know what the problem is? We need more money, more power, more control, and we need more time to be able to fix this problem. No, you've had 50 years, you've had $50 trillion, you've had enough, it's not working, we're done. That's what the American people should be saying to Joe Biden when he proposes stuff like this. Now this next one, I had to include it because we're doing a daily dose of stupid. It's not racist. It doesn't really have anything to do with race. Like the last one where Joe Biden apparently thinks that black people are incapable of doing things on their own. And so they need a lot of government programs for them to come in and fix it. This one's not racist. It's just dumb and funny. And because of that, it has a lot of entertainment value. So, uh, Watch this clip and see if you can actually tell what the crap Joe Biden is saying. Not try to reason it out or ration out. Just tell me if you can actually understand the words coming out of his pie hole.
1: Just imagine if was said to deny of Americans the ability to own their own home.
0: What? W- what? What? Play that again.
1: Just imagine if was said to deny of Americans the ability to own their own home.
0: The American just imagine own their own help? Okay, what did he just say? Look, Donald Trump was not the world's greatest communicator. Now Obama was pretty darn good. Uh, now he he couldn't really go off script or, or live without a teleprompter, but the man when he was on point, he was a fantastic communicator, socialist as he may be. Donald Trump was not the world's most skilled communicator by any stretch of the imagination, but the words that he said were actually understandable. Now, you may have disagreed with it. You may have said he, he made that point in a way that was insensitive or it wasn't smart to present the message that way, but you actually did understand the words coming out of his mouth. Joe Biden has checked out on us. He is not there, gang. President Houseplant has left the building. The lights are on, but nobody's so So I just thought y'all would get a kick out of that. Uh, Let's go ahead and move on to the next clip. Apparently, Joe Biden doesn't think that black people understand that they need lawyers and accountants if they're gonna run a business?
1: The data shows young black entrepreneurs are just as capable of succeeding given the chance as white entrepreneurs are, but they don't have lawyers, they don't have they 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 don't have accountants really but they have great ideas does anyone doubt this whole nation be better off from the investments those people make and i promise you that's why i set up this national small business administration that's much broader because they're going to get those loans
0: i mean that is incredibly demeaning and racist he's like yeah the, the thing is black people they're just as competent just as able to succeed and just as smart and have just as good ideas as white people. But, but the problem is they just, you know, they don't have lawyers and they don't have accountants. I would think part of being a business person and being competent and and being able to conduct business would mean you understand that you have to have accountants and you, you have to have lawyers. I mean, to me, that would be part of being a good business owner, but you notice he gives no stats nothing to back up this idea that black business owners just don't have those things. Um, I actually have really good friends that are black business owners that are friends of mine that have even been sponsors of my show. I guarantee you they have lawyers and they have accountants to help them run their business and they're very successful. Just as successful as their white counterparts. But (laughs) Joe Biden's rationale for why overall, generally speaking, black people are not as successful as white people is because they, they don't have lawyers and accountants I, I i don't think that's the case and i don't think that he can provide any stat that backs that up i just think that it's so weird that biden and the democrats in general tend to be so racist and think so little of black people and yet black people overwhelmingly vote for them you remember when joe biden was saying that black people are basically just not smart enough to get voter ids and that's the reason that it's unfair and that's the reason it's voter suppression to require a voter id when you're going to confirm that someone is a citizen that's supposed to be voting, they're like, Yeah, well, well, black people don't have IDs. Um, which black people do you know that don't have driver's licenses? I live in Montgomery. We're 70% black. Everybody I know has a driver's license. All of them. Over 16, of course. I don't I don't know any people, black, white, whatever, that don't have driver's licenses. And he was saying that, well, you can't, we were saying you don't even have to pass a driver's test. You can just get a regular non-voter id and and joe biden's answer to that conservative talking point was well yeah but they can't they can't get to a computer and they can't like go down to their local library and and fill it out and they're just not smart enough to do that i'm like how dumb do they think black people are voting is not that hard it's actually super simple i wish it were more complicated to be honest um but This idea that black people just aren't smart enough to get IDs and aren't smart enough to know where to go to vote and all these things, or they they can't go down to their they don't have internet access, or if they don't if they actually legitimately don't have internet access, they can't go down to a free local library and use the internet. They're not smart enough to do that. Like Democrats must think black people are just morons. And it's really sad because it comes across in a lot of their talking points. You remember when Joe Biden was saying hey, look, poor kids are just as bright and just as intelligent as as white kids. And I was like, so poor is a synonym for black now? Like he just constantly says these things where he has this, it's not even really soft bigotry, it's just straight up bigotry of low expectations for black people. And it seems like people on, nobody ever calls him out on that, except for that one time when that one girl called him out for being a racist on the stage of a Democrat debate And that little girl wound up becoming his vice president. (laughs) candidate. Apparently she didn't think it was all that racist. The one time he actually gets called out on his racism. Turns out he makes that person his vice president candidate candidate. So I, I know that Joe Biden probably doesn't know this because he thinks that black people are too stupid to get degrees in law and accounting, but I know this is going to shock him, but there are actually some black lawyers and some black accountants. I know that this would stun him to learn that there are black people that can do those things, but I actually know a lot of them. I know several black lawyers because I live right next to – I live on the campus that has a law school, so I know a lot of black lawyers. And I actually know several black accountants and several successful black business people. They are capable of doing these things. I know that Joe Biden, that would stun him, but no – Here's the thing that's so funny about that. You'll notice he started out that clip by saying, look, black people and black business owners are just as competent as white people. Here's the thing. I believe that. I 100% believe that. And I believe that their ideas are good, just like Joe Biden said. The difference is when I say it, my actions back up that sentiment because I believe that black people can make it on their own. They don't need me. They don't need a government. They don't need Joe Biden to succeed. I think that they can succeed having exactly the same resources and freedoms available to them as white people do. They don't need a leg up in that sense. They can do it on their own. Joe Biden is constantly saying to black people that they're too stupid to do this without the government's help. That's the irony here. See, if he actually believed that black people were just as uh, competent and just as good at what they were doing as white people are, He wouldn't need to say, oh, we've got to have all these government programs to help them out because they can't really do it on their own. No, if he really believes that black people were that competent, he would say, well, they need the same things that white people do. I don't see why we would be giving them extra help because they can do it on their own just like white people can. It just amazes me that nobody thinks about this kind of stuff. When talking about Joe Biden, if they were just as capable as white people, they wouldn't need all these programs because here's the thing. They can get lawyers and accountants, too. And, you know, do. But that's not the last racist thing Joe Biden said this week. We have one more clip of him saying something I think equally offensive.
1: In the spirit of meeting people where they are, we'll also be working with a black coalition against covid and other organizations to launch a new initiative called shots at the shop. Barbershops, beauty shops are hubs of activity information in black and brown communities, particular, but in many communities across the nation. Local barbers, stylists, they become key advocates for vaccinations in their communities, offering information to customers, booking appointments for them, even using their own businesses as vaccination sites. We're gonna work with shops across the country to make an even bigger impact over the next month.
0: Now, I don't think that there's anything inherently racist about saying that we need to launch them in barber shops. I think it's a little weird and hokey. And personally, as someone who tends to be very libertarian, I don't like the fact that the government is handling the vaccine rollout anyway but just kind of leaving all that aside at the table because I know that Joe Biden doesn't share that sentiment. That in and of itself is not what I'm saying is racist here. It's the same kind of low expectations that we saw sort of implied in the last clip. He's saying, look, black people are spending a lot of time at the barbershop and we know that they tend to hang out around there. So what we're going to do is because black people are just not smart enough to get the vaccine on their own or know where to go to get them or you know when they're supposed to make appointments. We're just gonna have to, to baby them a little bit and cater to them. So we're going to send these vaccination sites out to the barber shops to try to use that as a, a form of community outreach. I'm sorry, that's stupid. Black people don't need that. If a black person hasn't got a vaccine, do you know what I assume? they don't want the vaccine. Now I might disagree with that decision. I might think that they actually do need the vaccine. I might advise them to do so. I've advised people in my own family to get the vaccine. I don't really see the need for me to get it because you know, I'm 32 years old at very low risk, that kind of thing. But the older people in my family, sure. I've told them to go ahead and get vaccinated. And I don't have, a, I'm not anti-vax, but if I see a black person and the black person knows that they're available, He's eligible to get one, knows he can get one for free, and he hasn't got one. Joe Biden apparently thinks, oh, well, see, the thing is the government hasn't come there and held his hand to be able to give him the vaccine. You know what I assume? I was like, he probably doesn't want the vaccine. If he hasn't gone to get it, I imagine it's just not real important to him. And I'm fine with that. Even if I disagree with his decision, it's his decision to make. I don't assume that he's so incompetent that he hasn't figured out how to get a free vaccine yet. And that's the thing that is just so mind blowing to me is that there's such a low bar of expectation for black people coming from Democrats. And I also find this pretty darn funny too. Joe Biden has been saying all this time, we got to, we got to, you know, trust the experts, trust the science, man. Come on. Trust, you know. I mean, that's what Joe Biden says all the time. We got to trust the experts and trust the science like your barber for medical advice. <laughs> be one thing if he was just putting up the stations in there but you heard him in that speech he was saying yeah the barbershops they're key uh spaces for information and we're gonna we're gonna have barbers telling people about how to get the vaccine it's like you sure your barber should be giving you advice on what vaccines and medications to be taking <laughs> kind of feel like they're not really the experts in that particular <laughs> field <laughs> nothing wrong with talking to your barber but i i don't know that that would be the uh The expert that I would go to, it's funny to me because that also confirms sort of in a roundabout way what I've been saying about people on the left uh, this entire time, which is when they say expert, they mean person that agrees with me because any expert that agrees with them, they're like, listen to the experts. Any expert that disagrees with them, they're like, oh, they're not really an expert. Okay, well, now you've just redefined expert to mean person that agrees with the thing that I I believe. (laughs) Ultimately, I think what this does boil down to is Dems, they really believe that black people need benevolent white people like them in the government to help them out because they they just can't do things on their own. They can't make it without them. And so they need the benevolent hand of government. And usually that comes in the form of an old white guy, occasionally an old white woman, but normally an old white guy to come down there and to lift them up because they just they can't make it without them. As a conservative and a libertarian and a small government-minded kind of person, I believe, no, black people are just as smart as white people. They can make it with the same things that we do. And I would rather us just not have any government assistance at all, because then I believe that the best ideas would rise to the top. And if that person that has the best ideas happens to be white, fine. If they happen to be black, fine with me too. I don't care. I want the best products at the best price, which is why I like free markets. Because the free market doesn't care what color you are. All it does is reward the person that comes up with the best idea for the best price, period, end of discussion. That's what I want. That's fairness. And the reason that I think that that won't hurt the black community is because I believe that black people are just as good at playing the market and have just as good ideas as white people are. See, when I say that, my actions and my belief system actually is indicative of that. It backs up when I make that claim that I actually believe what I'm saying. Joe Biden's is the exact opposite. He says, no, black people are just as competent as white people. They just need all this government assistance to actually help them compete on the same level. Yeah, that's that's not what being just as competent is. If, if there was a guy that was, you know, for example, um, a really fast runner and a really slow runner, you might look at that person and go, yeah, the really slow runner, he's going to need some help there. But if they were of the same skill level, you wouldn't say either one of them needs help because they're at the same level. And so his his actions and his ideology does not actually back up what he claims to believe. And now it's time for the thing that we have been teasing all night long, the Chaplain's Report that is coming up right now. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's
1: time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics.
0: Since it is Gay Pride Month, and that's been everywhere, social media, regular media, TV, radio, whatever, it's all over the place. Yes, I'm sick of it. I'm sure that most of the people that are watching me right now are sick of it as well. But I did want to answer this question because I think that it is something that bears repeating. And because we're constantly bombarded with it, I think that we do need to take a look at what is the correct Christian way to approach a month-long celebration of sin. Because this is something that, frankly, is not completely new to the Christian world throughout our entire history we have dealt with societies and civilizations that would glorify and celebrate sin. American society in 2021 is no different. And so there's a a number of different historical events we could go to, but I thought it would make sense for us just to spend most of our time in the scripture. Because I have learned time and time again, if you just stick to the scripture, it's really hard to screw that up. And so even though I typically give a lot of my opinion, I feel that it just makes sense for us to go to the scripture first. Ultimately, I believe, and I'm going to prove this through the scriptures that we visit this evening, that homosexuality at its core is of course a sexual sin, so lust is involved, but it is primarily a sin of pride. And we're going to go over that this evening. So first we're going to go to the book of 1 John. This is chapter two, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you notice in this verse how homosexuality fits all three of these ingredients? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the pride of life. Ultimately, it fits all of these things. Every single one of them can be found in these verses. And if you look in verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. So, this is an important part of this verse because specifically, it talks about the world and the lust being something that is temporary. And this makes sense to us because in a lot of ways, our flesh and our flesh the temporal world are things that are not going to be permanent staples of Christian life. And so it's important for us to understand that when John is drawing this contrast here, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, he's saying that is, in a sense, a summary of what everything the world has to offer is homosexuality is all of those things. It's obviously the lust of the flesh because it's a sexual act. It's the lust of the eyes because there are people that look at people with the the same gender as they are and burn in their lust because of that. Now, there's people that do that with heterosexual too, and it can be just as wrong if you're doing that with someone who you're not married to, but it's definitely something that occurs with homosexuality. And then finally, the pride of life. And this is something that I think that they have sort of accidentally shown their hand on. The fact that they call it gay pride and gay pride month, I think is actually terribly appropriate. Because they are proud and celebrating in their sin. Now, I think that part of this is an overcompensation because there is some small part of them that understands this is a wrong thing to do. This is something that is against their own nature. I think most of them have probably gotten to the point now that they've deadened themselves to that. But on some level... There is some consciousness of knowing that this is not something that is appropriate or something that is within God's will. And because of that, they try to overcompensate and celebrate it. You saw in the video we saw of Blue's Clues where they were showing the gay pride parade. They're like, they love proudly. They love proudly. Pride. They love proudly. Happy Pride Month. They say it over and over and over again because they think somehow that if you are proud of your sin, then it's not really sin. If it's something that you're not ashamed of, if you don't feel guilt in or you try to convince yourself that you don't feel any guilt for it, then it must not be wrong. And for somebody that thinks that everyone is their own moral compass and their own moral arbiter, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you can convince yourself it's not wrong, then it's not wrong if every sin is subjective. If morality is just based on the person, then all you have to do is work yourself to where you don't feel personally bad about your sin anymore. And then the sin must not be a sin anymore. It must be okay if you don't feel bad about it. That's where the pride comes in here. The boastful pride of life means you have taken sin to such a level that you no longer regard it as something to be ashamed of anymore. And that's exactly what John is talking about. But this actually has a correlation with another passage of Scripture. Let's go now to Genesis 3, verse 6. This is talking about the fall of man when Eve is tempted in the garden. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. You notice anything here? She noticed it was good for food. In other words, lust of her flesh and that it was a delight to the eyes, pretty obvious, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Well, now, why would somebody want to be wise? Because of pride. Right here in the original sin, the very first sin that humankind ever committed, all three of the ingredients that John talked about are right there. That's the ingredient for sin. When you have those things, that is what the world has to offer you. And that's exactly what gay pride is, isn't it? It's a combination of those three. Now, there's lots of other sins that take completely different forms other than homosexuality that have those things. I'm not saying that homosexuality is unique in this way. But I'm saying you'll notice that at the core of that is Eve's pride. She wants to be like God, and that's what the devil has promised her. And because of that, she decides to go ahead and eat of the fruit because she wants to be as wise as God. She wants to be basically her own God. It is a sin of displacement. Satan has convinced her that if she eats of the fruit, that she will be like God. She will have essentially displaced God and made herself God. God told her not to eat of that fruit and in her mind, if she partakes of the fruit, she becomes wise as God, and it also means that she is the master of what she gets to do and not do. In her mind, that's how it works. It is a sin of displacement. And it, their core, isn't that what all sin is? It's the assertion that God doesn't know what's actually best for us. What we want or what we decide is actually what's best for us. And so whenever we sin, it is a a rebellion against God. It is a rejection of who God is. And it is us putting ourselves in God's place, saying we get to make the decisions about what is right for us. Guys, that's all homosexuality is. Or transgenderism or whatever else. All of the different isms that come with that. Because what it says to God is, you don't get to decide who I love. I'm going to love whoever I want to, proudly but isn't that just saying to god no no you're not god i'm god i get to decide those things transgenderism same thing no no you don't get to decide whether i'm male or female god that's not up for you to decide for me i get to decide that i will make my own choices ultimately both of these things are sins of pride and now we're going to go to another passage that addresses exactly this and sort of builds upon it. So let's go ahead and go to Romans 1, verses 21 through 25, which reads, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." And exchanged the glory of God for the uh, exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible mankind of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them up to vile impurity in the lust of their hearts, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a falsehood and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Is blessed forever, amen. You see how this goes along with that exact same thing. That what has happened is we've displaced God, we have made it to where we get to make our own moral decisions and make our own choices and say, No, no, this isn't a sin, this isn't wrong, this is right, and I've decided that it is right, therefore it is okay. I don't have a problem with it, I don't see the danger here, therefore I get to be God, and that's exactly what is being said here. In Romans, he's saying that they have thrown away all sense, all rationale. They have basically become animals. Why? What is their moral principle? Whatever I want in the moment that I want it. Well, if that's the case, then you are just an animal. All you're doing is following your animalistic instincts to wherever they lead. You're not a person. You're not reasoning this out. And so we see a process develop. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans. First, you forget God. Then you forget reason, then your heart is darkened and then you have, as Paul just said, replaced the image of an incorruptible God with a corruptible man, yourself. That is what's happening here. Now we have displaced God out of his rightful place and we've decided that we're the ones that get to make all of those moral decisions. And when that happens, the final stage in that process is it says God turns them over to their own vile affections to reap what they sow. They are going to sow dishonor in their flesh because that is what they have chosen to do. Dishonor their flesh. Dishonor their creator. Dishonor the purpose that God put them on this earth for. He gave them their minds. He gave them their bodies. They chose to reject all of that. I'll I'll remake my body to be whatever I want it to be. I'll remake my affections to be whatever I want it to be. And that's the problem with homosexuality. Yes, it is a sexual sin. Nobody denies that. But like most sins, if you dig down deep enough, pride is there waiting at the bottom. It is the first sin. It is the primordial sin. It is the sin that turned the devil from an angel to a devil. It's the reason that he was cast out. Ultimately, pride is the poison at the bottom of every sin. It's the root cause. And that's where we find ourselves right now. Homosexuality may be a different flavor of that poison, but it's the same poison. I mean, it's like eating vanilla cyanide versus cherry cyanide. Okay, you might like one flavor better than the other, but at the end of the day, it's still going to kill you. And so... That's really where we kind of stand on that. So I want us to go now to another passage that will probably sound very familiar to you. And this is just a few verses after the passage that we just read in Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural relations for that which is contrary to nature. And likewise, the men, too, abandoned their natural relations with women and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males, committing shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So the first thing I want you to notice about this is that it says that they're going to reap the benefits of their own error. In other words, you have created an error that is going to lead to error. You have done something wrong, and because of that, your body is going to be dishonored as a result of that. And so this is God basically saying like, look, I'm not the one punishing you for this. You've taken a body that was designed to do a very specific thing and chosen to use it in a way that it was never intended to use. It's kind of like, have you ever had to use a, screw ham- a screwdriver as a hammer? Like you didn't have a hammer around, and so you had to take like the, the back of your screwdriver and drive a nail. What happens? Well, the nail is almost always crooked. If it works, it's really hard to flush that nail. And you might wind up messing up your screwdriver. And that's exactly what it's like. And I'm not even talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually here. When we use our spirits and we use our flesh to do things that God never designed them to do. I'm not even talking about the physical ramifications, even though Paul is talking about that as well. It does something to our soul. That causes us to understand we are using what God gave us for a purpose that he never intended. See, God gave us the blessing. He's the one that created us. He designed us in a specific way. And because of that, he knows what will work best, what setup is best, what process is best, what is the best way for us to live. And if we reject him, then we get what we deserve. It's not like God is standing there thumping us for screwing up. I'm not saying he doesn't occasionally punish, because I think that he does, even on this side of eternity, sometimes he does directly punish. But most of the time, it's just more like God says, okay, I'm going to give you up to your affections. I'm going to let you rebel in the lifestyle that you've chosen, and the result is not good. And I want you to notice something else, too. Do you realize that I just gave you a lesson on homosexuality? And I did not start with the verses that condemn homosexuality. We got there, but we got there slowly. And I explained the process and I explained why these verses, uh, why this sin is wrong through verses that didn't start with homosexuality. I think that's the mistake that most Christians make. A lot of us are very eager to make our point and to tell people that homosexuality is wrong. And most of the time we jump to either this passage Or one of the passages, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6 or in 1 Timothy 1, where it specifically says homosexuality is bad. But we don't actually do the groundwork of explaining why it's bad. And if we don't explain why it's bad, then we do just sound like bigots. We do just sound like killjoys that are like, nope, you can't do that. And it's arbitrary. It sounds arbitrary when we teach people this. But if you actually do the legwork, and it doesn't take that long. I've only been doing this for about 10 minutes now. If you go into the background and you understand the scripture and you understand why the sin of homosexuality is wrong, people are a lot more apt to understand that. And listen, they won't always. Sometimes they'll reject that too. I mean, even Jesus, who was the perfect teacher, got rejected by most people. And so that's not a commentary on you or your teaching or even the scripture, that's just the way that it's going to be most of the time. But if you are willing to put in the time to actually explain to a person why this sin is wrong, it makes a world of difference. It allows them to at least maybe understand a little bit of why you're coming from that standpoint and why you see it the way that you do, and you don't just come off as a killjoy that just has a long list of things that you're not allowed to do. Once you understand that there are consequences that come from this, that it is a self-destructive lifestyle and that that's the way that you see it and you're actually trying to help gay people that are caught up in this sin because you believe that it is something that is going to harm them long term, people are a lot more receptive to that and they should be. That comes with Christ's command to teach the truth in love. And I want us to look at one more Bible verse this evening before we wrap it up. And this comes from that same chapter in Romans, Romans 1, a little bit further down, though, in Romans one thirty-two. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Up till this point, we have been talking primarily about the sin of homosexuality itself and the people that are engaged in them. And that verse certainly does that. But did you notice what it said at the end there? It says that the people that reap this reward, they are worthy of death, and not only those that do the same sin, but those that approve of it. Those that, as the scripture says, approve of those who practice them. There are a lot of Christians that I think mean well. But because they are so ensconced in this worldly philosophy and worldly thinking, they actually think that they're doing the Christian thing by not judging, even though the Bible never condemns judgment wholesale. It it condemns improper judgment, but it doesn't condemn all judgment. But that's a a Bible lesson for a different time. They think that the real Christian and loving thing to do is to just not say anything or to tell people that they approve of what they're doing because that just – that seems easier, and that seems like it's, it's more the loving thing to do. This is wrong. And that scripture, which it talks about other sins too, and I'm not ignoring those, but it primarily was addressing people that give themselves up to homosexuality. It ends on that note, that that sin is worthy of death, and those that endorse it, those that approve of it, the approve of those who engage in that practice, They bear the same sin. And so I understand that it's difficult. I understand it's uncomfortable. Sometimes being a Christian is going to be that way. We're supposed to be at odds with the world. That same chapter that we just looked at said, if if you're a friend of the world, then you're not on God's side. In in 1 John, it said, if you love the world and if you love the things that it offers, the love of the Father is not in you. And so to love the way that God loves, we have to be willing to tell people when they're wrong. We have to be willing to love them enough to tell them the truth and that this is not a good thing for them to engage in. And if we approve it, then we are guilty of the same sin. If we say, yeah, that's okay, go ahead, you do you, be, be the, what you want to be. If you want to be fine, yeah, that's, that's fine, there's nothing wrong with that. If we do that, we're guilty of the same sin. And we are leading them down a path and thinking, making them think that God approves of that decision, which is something that we cannot do as Christians. And this is something that I, I do think that we genuinely need to consider in our relations with other people. Now, I'm not saying we need to browbeat people. I don't think that we constantly need to just be a bullhorn that's always saying homosexuality is a sin, even though it is. And I do think that we need to address that. And we need to tell people if we find them engaged in that. But ultimately, I don't think that browbeating people is a productive way to handle that, but I also don't think that being silent is something that we can do and still be Christians. And so, you know, handle it with love and grace and and try to do exactly what I did, which is explain the basis and the reason why homosexuality is wrong, not just the fact that God says it's, it's bad. But also don't remain silent either. And don't act like you endorse it because the Christians that— Or the so-called Christians that are endorsing the sin, they're guilty of the same sin. Don't put yourself in that situation. Don't put yourself in that boat. And we've talked a lot about how homosexuality at its core is pride. What's the antidote to pride? Humility. That's what we're called to do. Because humility leads us to admit that we are incapable of making those decisions it leads us to admit that we are not strong enough or mature enough on our own without God's help and his favor to make the decision of what is right and what is wrong. It leads us to seek out God's help and aid when it comes to these matters. When it's difficult to talk to somebody about this, God helps us with that too if we are humble and we ask for it. And so humility is the cure to this sin because pride is at its core. And if you are somebody that has those kinds of attractions, humility also leads you to say, look, God's the one that made me. He knows me better than I do, and he knows what lifestyle is going to ultimately make me better or ultimately make me worse. And I trust him enough, and I'm humble enough to understand that I don't have all the answers to believe that he does. That's where humility leads. If you want the antidote to that and pretty much every other sin... It boils down to humility because it will lead us to make those decisions. And it also will remind us that other people don't get to make that decision either. That if we're humble enough to say, look, I'm a human and and that kind of decision is above my pay grade, we'll also say that for other people as well. We'll be humble enough to say, look, God says that this is wrong and, and he's higher than us. His ways are higher than our ways. And so if he says that it's not okay, there must be a good reason for that. Ultimately, I think that I could sum up this entire lesson in three little words. Tolerance isn't love. Stay the course, friends.
1: In seventeen
0: seven. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University. Location studio provided by Reda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.